Let's open to the book of Acts together. Uh, We'll be in Acts 14 this morning. Continuing on in Acts. We're about halfway, which is cool. Um, We're going to read, we're going to cover the whole chapter. So um, once you're at Acts 14, flip to the last, I'm just going to read the last uh, five verses, verse 24 to 28 to start, and then we'll read through it as we go. I'll be reading out of the ESV this morning. Sorry, I like the consistency of the NIV, but I just, the wording is a little better in the ESV, in my opinion, this, so that's why we're here this morning. And uh, this sermon is uh, called Blood on the Tongue, which that will become clear. So let's read Acts 14, verse 24 to 28, and let's pray. Then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. And when they had spoken the word in Perga, and they went down to Italia, and from there they sailed to Antioch where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work they had fulfilled. And when they had arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remained no little time with the disciples. That's God's word. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your word this morning. Thank you that it is God-breathed and living and active and it's more than just information, Lord. This is, this is your word. It's powerful. It has power to change us, transform us, to save on the spot, to lead us to repentance and life and the way we should go. And ultimately, it just glorifies Jesus. And so, Holy Spirit, would you just make the gospel and Jesus really clear to everyone in this room? And would we worship Jesus uh, as a response to hearing your word this morning? Help me just be faithful, Lord, to what, you've, what you have given us in your word. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, if, if you've ever seen uh, maybe like a documentary or in person somebody telling war stories to you, um, you know that as this person is telling you stories of when they were at war, there's like this real like gravity to that moment, right? Like rarely does somebody puff up their chest and brag about what they've done. Um, more common in that setting is like tears and seriousness and like real pain on their face as they share what they went through. And what we are going to read this chapter, Acts 14, has real gravity to it. Paul and Barnabas, just at the end, as we just read, they, they just completed their first missionary journey and they, they're doing what we're doing right now. They got the church together and they're going to tell the church all that God has done. But as we will read, on this trip, Paul came so close to death that the people who executed him thought he was dead. Like, Paul's coming, not with a puffed up chest, like, you guys won't believe what happened. Like, he, like, he probably maybe still has blood, the taste of blood in his mouth as he's sharing these stories. And more significant than like, yeah, I was in World War II, People were rescued from eternity and, and walked away from Jesus for eternity in this chapter. And what Paul is communicating has real eternal weight to it. And I, I want us to like feel that as we read this. Like this is really, this, this is church history. This is your history. And these are real people who were saved or walked away from Jesus for eternity. And so I think it's important that we like kind of feel what, what th- it would have felt like for Paul to stand up and share this chapter with the church. So we're going to look uh, first at verse 1 together, Acts chapter 14, verse 1. It says this, Now at Iconium, 
they, which is Paul and Barnabas, entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. Now, I want to give us a little bit of context here. We have a map. Um, so on the far right is Antioch. That's where they left from. That's, where, that's like Reality Carp who sent them out. And then they, they, they sailed to Cyprus. Remember, that was Barnabas' hometown. They, they preached the gospel there. They encountered some opposition there. And then they sailed up to Perga, which is basically where we're starting. And then um, the chapter, and then they go to, actually, I'm sorry. They, they go to Perga in chapter 13, go to another Antioch, which isn't the same one. And now they're going to Iconium. Then they go down to Iconium, Lystra, and Derby, which are the three cities we'll be in this chapter. And then they go back through where, most of where they came, and then they went back to Antioch at the end. So that's, that's kind of like the map. That's modern-day Turkey. Uh, Syria, Israel's like more over here on the coast. So they are going to Iconium. It's kind of like top right-ish is where this starts in verse 1. Uh, so they start in Iconium. They preach the gospel. Verse 1 tells us, and people actually believe. Like we just see the power of the gospel in one verse People get saved. And that's awesome. That's the, the power of the word of God. That's what they came to do. But look at one verse later. What ha- look at one verse. The difference from verse one to verse two. Verse two. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. As is life, within just one verse, the situation can turn from so encouraging to so discouraging. That's just life. And that's especially life with Jesus. Like one moment, you're just on this mountaintop with joy and you're like, I love Jesus, it's worth it, I'll do anything. And then like the next could be moment, you could be feeling so discouraged and so disappointed. And that was what these men experienced. Like, God, you're doing something. And then in that moment, Jews come in and they poison the minds and everyone's like, don't even trust Paul and Barnabas. And here's what's really fascinating about these Jews. Think about this. These people who rejected Paul and Barnabas claim to know God and love God. Think about that. They're like, yeah, I know and I love God. Yet they're actively opposing the message of Jesus. And they're poisoning the mind so that no one will listen to the message of Jesus. And here, it's interesting because we live in a culture that's really similar. We're like, hey, it's okay to like be religious. It's actually even maybe cool to be religious and to be spiritual. Yeah, I believe in God. But the moment someone speaks the specific name of Jesus, there's opposition. And here's the point. General, vague spirituality is not enough. And it's not enough to be like, yeah, I'm spiritual and I'm down and I love God and I want to follow God. We have to hear the name of Jesus, the saving power of the blood of Jesus. And as in this day, so in ours, the moment that name is proclaimed, there's opposition by religious people. Notice that. These weren't atheists, which is maybe what we're a little more familiar with in our culture. These were religious people who are opposing Jesus. And so what's their response? Look at verse three together. So they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. And I love God's word because it's so counterintuitive. Um, And it's what these men do is not, you know, what I maybe would do. Um, But what we learn from Paul and Barnabas, okay, there's opposition. 
So let's stay and keep speaking boldly the name of Jesus. Where there's opposition, where people are like, no, I don't know about that, they stayed and engaged and they, they like turned up the volume. They're like, no, Jesus is the only way, truth, and the life. And they spoke boldly for the Lord. I'll be honest, uh, I'm intimidated to do evangelism like interpersonally. And if it starts to go sour, what I honestly do is I'm, I back off. I'm like, okay, no, no, it's okay. Like, but this is what they, they're like, no, like Jesus is for real. He's your only hope. And what we see in this verse is as they speak boldly, God himself shows up. God himself bears witness that this is true, that there's power in the name of Jesus, which is also encouraging because the power is not in us in our presentation, in our cleverness, in our knowledge of the culture, it's in God. They just kept speaking about Jesus and God is like, watch, I'll show up. And in the, in, in the word of his grace, as it says, God starts doing signs and wonders. I mean, imagine that, like, ah, I don't know. And then like signs and wonders, like that would get attention. And remember, like God hasn't changed and still bears witness through signs and wonders, but remember the, the, the most significant sign, most significant wonder on earth is someone who is lost believing in Jesus. Like that, the power of the gospel is itself like, that's amazing. Why would that person completely change their whole, whole worldview and follow Jesus? That is the power of God. The gospel is the power of God. And so they kept preaching. God showed up. And then look at verse four. Look what, sorry about that. Look what this uh, boldness leads to. Verse four, it says, but the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. Okay, this is obvious, but it's worth saying. Jesus is polarizing. He is, he's polarizing. When Jesus is proclaimed, some people are like, yeah, I don't believe that. And some people are like, yes, I believe it. But here's really, this is really significant, especially for us. Why is Jesus polarizing? Is it because he was really harsh with those he disagreed with? Is it because he only came to eat and drink with those whom looked like him or believed his same beliefs or, you know, even had the same uh, perspectives on politics? Is that why Jesus was divisive? Uh, was Jesus polarizing because he was more passionate about solving the political issues of the day than the kingdom of God? Was Jesus polarizing because he came to condemn the world? No, Jesus was polarizing because of the message of his grace. Look at verse four. It says, I mean, verse three, they preached the word of his grace and that led to division. Because this is, this is important. Grace, the grace of God is actually offensive. It's polarizing. Number one, it offends the good people. It was offending these Jews. It offends good religious people who have acted better than all the bad people. It's offensive to good people. It offends those who are in, who have it all together, who obey God more than others, because it says, that's not enough. You need to be saved. You need the blood and righteousness of someone other than yourself. And so all the Jews are like, man, what is this message? And you know what? The, the, the word of God's grace is also offensive to the bad people. It says, hey, you need forgiveness. Your sin isn't okay. It's not okay. 
You have fallen short of the glory of God. And to both good people and bad people, it says God loves you and died for you, for your sin, for your self-righteousness, good people, and for your sin, bad people. And it's divisive. And when the church is really being who it's called to be using, like when, when the gospel is our message, it will be divisive. But here's the important thing. It'll be divisive to people on the right and people on the left. It'll be, a, it'll be a divisive to really good, righteous, religious people and really bad, whatever, sinful people. And we, we need to always ask, am I only offending a certain crowd? Maybe, maybe you're not like preaching the gospel. You're preaching something else. They, they were preaching the word of the grace of God, verse three tells us, and it led to division. And I just want us to, to be a church that um, are, we're offensive only because of the blood of Jesus. Not because of anything else. Not because of culture or politics or anything else, simply because we proclaim the message of Jesus that he loves the world and came for sinners, that if anyone would repent, they would be saved from their sin. And, and we should be, listen, if Reality Carp is doing it right, there should be religious people upset at Reality Carp. And there should be, you know, liberal people and the culture upset at us at the same time. That's just kind of like how we know. Am I offending both groups? Okay, I'm doing okay. I'm like Jesus. I'm doing like Jesus. I'm like Paul. We're doing it right. And so this is what happens in the next uh, three verses. Let's look at verse five through seven together. When an attempt was made, this is awesome. Look at the unified opposition by the Gentiles and the Jews with their rulers. So you got politics involved, you got Gentiles involved, you got Jews involved to mistreat them and to stone them, meaning like execute them with rocks. They learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of that. Lyconia and the surrounding country. And there, look at this, they continued to preach the gospel. I love this about Paul and Barnabas and what we're called to do. Persecution will just lead to the spreading of the gospel. Persecution should always lead to the spreading of the gospel. And this is a little interesting. Um, you know, at first they were like, no, let's stay. And then they're like, no, let's go. And I think there's just Holy Spirit leading there. There's some mystery there. When do we stay and stay bold? Or when are we like, you know, no, we're probably gonna die. Maybe it's worth spreading the gospel. It's kind of ambiguous. But the point is they continued to preach the gospel. In the midst of opposition, in the midst of what man and Satan intends for evil, God is working for good. This is how the church spread in the first couple hundred years. It was always persecution and they went and spread the gospel. So they, they move on to Lystra and Derby, and we pick up at verse eight. And actually, we have that map again just so we can reorient ourselves. So Iconium, they go down kind of to the left right there at Lystra and that's where we're at now. They're almost gonna turn around. So let's read verse eight together. Now at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. Um, I just want us to pause for a second. It's really easy to just move past this stuff. Uh, but this was a real guy who never lived a day where he could walk. And imagine if you've never walked a day in your life, um, imagine the potential for bitterness and even despair. And I think it's really easy to move past these types of people in the Bible. It's honestly easy to move past these types of people still today. But like this man was real and he was suffering. And then look at what happens in verse nine. 
he listened to Paul speaking. And Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, and I'm going to pause for a second. I want us to, to notice this. Uh, verse 9, of all the people who was listening, it was this guy. This guy. And I think we can learn from him. Number one, he was listening to the word of God even though like, his life was a bummer. He wasn't so closed to God and to the word of God. He, and it, it even says Paul saw he had faith. Like this man wasn't so jaded and bitter like, yeah, this isn't for me. There's no hope for me. If he was, he never would have listened. But he, he knew there was hope for him in the word of God. He, he recognized somehow there was, there was hope for him in the word of God. And so then verse 10, it says, Paul said in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. I love that word sprang, right? I mean, never got to spring in his life. He springs up. Like Lazarus from the grave, he's just like, here I am. And, and this man is a picture of, of us, church. This is a picture of you and me. We were spiritually crippled from birth, unable to walk a step towards Jesus, unable to do a single righteous thing. And yet Jesus came to us, the word, and sought us out and spoke life to us before we earned it, before we did anything good, before we responded, walked a step he says, stand upright, and, and some of us hear and are made well. Like this man is a picture of us, of the church, of the type of people that belong here. Those who had no hope on their own, couldn't walk to go here, couldn't do anything, but Jesus came to us. And yet, so man, this is so good, but as in the last city, it takes a dark turn. So let's look at verse 11 to 13. It says this, and when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices saying in Lyconian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas, they called Zeus, Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. Okay, so a sign and wonder happens. The whole city just starts worshiping Paul on the spot. Like, oh my gosh, the gods have come. There's a, a backstory to this town that, um, that this town was, they specifically worshiped Zeus and Hermes. And a few years before this, we have an inscription that uh, the, the story goes that uh, Zeus and Hermes visited this town and everybody rejected them. And so they flooded the town and just judged everybody. So they're kind of like, hoping that doesn't happen again. So I think, oh, wait, this is them again. They're here. So like, let's worship them. Let's, we don't want to like offend them again. Now, I want us to be honest for a second, okay? Imagine you are on a mission trip and you heal somebody and the whole town is going nuts. Like, it's kind of awesome, right? Like, it's almost kind of the dream. I mean, this is literally what our culture dreams about. Like American Idol, right? Like this is the dream. I oh, Just imagine a whole crowd of people worshiping you like, like, we do that. I'm on a run, and I just imagine, like, a stadium just cheering for me. I just do. We, we're weird. We want this. This is the dream. And I also want to say, our culture is nothing new, right? Like, this is 2,000 years ago. People have been worshiping people forever. That's just what we do. We will worship people, celebrities, idols, anything but the one true God. And, and so this is nothing new, and they start getting worshipped. But look at how Paul and Barnabas handle this. They take this really seriously. 
Let's read verses 14 to 18 together. It says this. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed into the crowd, crying out, men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you. And we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without witness. For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. Um, a couple things to, to note. First of all, this is the first time we, we read a sermon preached to like totally pagans. Um, these aren't like, this is, they, these aren't Jews in a synagogue. These are just pure like pagan worshipers. And, uh, and so we see, this is interesting because Paul and all the apostles to this point, when they preach the gospel, they start with the Old Testament because that's kind of the context. Everyone gets that. And they're like, yeah, no, Jesus completes that. But here we see Paul adjust his presentations in, in a way that they would understand. Everybody gets like, you know, heaven and earth and the ocean and rains. And so he's being a good missionary here. He's starting where they're at and then he's leading them to Jesus. And so Paul's being a good missionary. But notice what Paul does right away. He, he knows, man, me and Barnabas are nothing special. Don't worship us. It's not about us. In fact, we are just men who were saved by the grace of God. And, and I think it's also important for us to, to pay attention um, to the tendency to, to deify religious leaders. I don't think that's gone. I don't think that's even gone in the church or even in our church. There's always a temptation to deify religious leaders. And when we see God doing amazing things through them, it's, it's really easy to start praising the men and giving credit to the men um, and not where it belongs, which is to God. And, and I love... Uh, Paul, he's always really intentional to avoid that. Um, and later in 1 Corinthians 3.21, this is what he says of himself. This is profound. I think we have it. He's, he's talking about his ministry. He says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the, gro- go- gives the growth. And then later down that chapter, he says, so let no one boast in men. I just think it's really profound that he would say, I'm nothing. Uh, neither he who plants or waters is anything. He wants none of the credit. Who, who he's worked pretty hard and he's been doing a good job. He's literally like, I'm nothing. Do not worship me. Attention needs to be on Jesus. And this is a good warning uh, for us as a church. Um, we, we, we should not trust people who believe their own press who are like, yeah, you know, I am pretty awesome. God's doing awesome things. This is the response that we, these are the type of men that we want to be as a leadership and that we want to follow. Men who are like, man, I'm nothing. Just go be with Jesus. Go be with Jesus. And so um, look in verse 19 now, what, what happens and how quickly things change. So you get this people worship going on. Paul's like, no, listen, it's about Jesus. And let's read verse 19. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, the same people, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing he was dead. 
The same people who were literally just worshiping Paul just tried to kill him. The same people, which is another reason why the praises of man is such a foolish trap, right? The same people who praised Jesus, Hosanna, save us, were the ones who yelled crucify him. The same ones who were worshiping Paul were just convinced by some persuasive person, you know, no, you should kill him. Oh, okay, yeah, we should kill him. And we want to kill Paul. And they actually try to do it. And they think that they, they, they stone him to the point where they're like, he's for sure dead. And they leave. I mean, it shows us, this is such a picture of the praises of man. And what a silly thing for us to fear, to fear man, to want the praises of man. Look how fickle we are as humanity. How quickly we're like, you're the best ever. You're like God. And like, I hate you. I want to kill you. That is the human heart. When we start to to fear man, when we start to seek the approval of man, when we want to worship man, this is the same thing we contribute to when we're praising men in ways we shouldn't. The praise belongs to Jesus because people, we can't ever live up to the hype. We just can't. We make really bad gods. People make really bad gods. Husbands and wives, um, friends, they are not to be worshiped. And when they are, it it will make for a really, really ugly end to that relationship. And as good as even really godly people like Paul are, they're just not Jesus. And, and we should just let really godly people just redirect our gaze to Jesus and redirect our praise to Jesus. And, and I'll just say this too. If you feel encouraged or if you feel compelled to encourage somebody, like Lucas just led worship first time on a Sunday morning, like do it, but let them know how Jesus is using them, right? Like give glory intentionally to Jesus. It's helpful for us because, you know, I'm like, oh man, I am kind of awesome. Like that's just not where, to, that's not where I need to be. I need to be like, Paul, no, I'm nothing. I am nothing. And so uh, as a church, let's just keep giving glory where it belongs to Jesus. And then at verse 20 uh, and 21, let's read together. So Paul's laying there almost dead. And verse 20 says this. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up, which is crazy, and entered the city, which is crazy. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. Um, do we have that map again? So just, I, this is real. He was almost dead. And then he gets up, goes back to the city where he was almost killed. And then the next day, they're like, all right, time to move on, go into Derby. And then they, they continue to go on more of a missions trip. They don't like, you know what? Yeah, Paul, maybe let's end this one early. Like you're barely alive. They're like, nope, let's go on to Derby. And then verse 21, when they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and Iconium and to Antioch. Um, also, one more thing to notice on that map. So they go to Derby, make a bunch of disciples, and then look where they started. You see to the right is Antioch. You know, if you were done with a missions trip, what would make sense? Well, let's go home. And, but what do they do? They're like, you know what? No, let's go back through where we've been and encourage everybody. And so they go back to Lystra and Iconium, Antioch, to Perga, and then they sail home. And I, I just, uh, I want us to notice what Paul is doing here. Paul is preaching with a taste of blood on his tongue. And he could have headed home. He could have, uh, he could have asked, you know, Barnabas, could you maybe preach? My tongue tastes like blood. Um, but he continues 
to go visit with his brothers and sisters in Christ where they were persecuted and almost killed and they encouraged the church. Paul is like living real like Christianity right here. He knows who he follows and he knows how he ended his life. He's like, I want to follow Jesus. Um, and I remember, this is, this is profound for me. I remember it was many years ago when I was sitting where you're sitting and I remember when Britt stood up here and said, man, I feel too young to pastor this church because uh, I haven't suffered enough. I remember him saying that. Um, and since then, as we know, he's suffered a lot. Uh, much that we know about and much that we don't know about. And I honestly feel the same. Who, I'm a 28-year-old. I, how could I teach? Like, look at Paul and Jesus. Who am I? I'm a schmuck to say, yeah, you're going to suffer for Jesus. But I, I want to say this. This is why we preach the Bible. You can trust the words of Paul. You can trust a bloody preacher. And you can trust the words of Jesus, your bloody Savior, with blood on his tongue said, it is finished. You can trust him. And that's why I love why we teach the word of God and not just here's some things that we've learned because like these men followed Jesus and were inspired by the Holy Spirit to write with authority for us. And we get to look up to like to men who have really suffered and, and wrote under the power and inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And so on some level, you know, any old schmuck like me can get up here and be like, hey, I don't know anything, but like, let's look at the word of God and let's look at what it means to follow Jesus and let's learn from them. And so Paul decides to go back and, and I want us to read verse 22 together. This is what he did on his way back as just barely alive. He goes back and it says he was strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, which I'm sure he was like struggling with, right? Like I keep going. To continue in the faith and saying through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And so that was his message. We go back to this city. Um, he probably looked ridiculous. And they're like, hey, don't give up. Jesus is worth it. You're gonna suffer like how I have, like how he has. But the kingdom of God is waiting for you. And, and, he, and he says a few, I want us to notice three things that Paul says to the church. Uh, the first thing he, he models and does and what we can learn from Paul is to follow Jesus is to inconvenience ourselves, to go out of our way, not to just to go home, to go out of our way to serve and encourage the church. Um, I, you know, it's really easy to view this gathering as just like a service by the professionals to the non-professionals. Uh, like this country club and, you know, you pay your dues and you get your service and if you don't like it, you go to another one. Um, but the church is you and the gathering is us, the people of God. And we, by being nature of being a part of this family of God, we are called to serve one another, to go out of our way, inconvenience ourselves to encourage and support and serve one another. That's, that's our identity as the church. Um, and I would personally love to just see us do that as a church. How can I like, you know what, that's cool. These people are hosting a community group. How can I serve it? How can I contribute? What can I bring? How can I serve or help? Um, I would love to see more of us serving our children's ministry. Uh, I have a baby who sometimes can't go because there's not enough people to hold babies. And I'm thinking, 
I mean, I guess they cry, but holding babies is like kind of awesome. Like I would just, I would love to see more of us. How can we serve our youth? How can we like take care of these facilities? How can I use the gifts that only I have to serve the family of God together? How can I follow Jesus by, by he left heaven, he put a towel around him and he washed feet as a picture of us, what we are to do for one another, to serve one another as a church. Uh, the second thing we can see from Paul and his words here is that we actually need to be reminded that we will suffer. Um, we need that reminding. And so Paul went and reminded everybody. He said, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Um, this is profound because do you remember when you first got saved? Do you remember that? When you were just like so in love with Jesus and you like couldn't wait to read your Bible and go to church and tell other people about Jesus? Like, you remember that moment? Um, think about this. If you could tell yourself in that state one thing, what would it be? Paul under the Holy, inspiration of the Holy Spirit, said, do you know what I need to tell these young Christians? You're going to suffer much before you see God. Like, wah, wah, right? To like the Christian who's like, I'll do anything. Paul's like, hey, you're going to suffer a lot before you enter the kingdom of God. Paul knew uh, there comes a day when worship and Bible reading and evangelizing and obeying Jesus just gets tough. He knows. He's living it. He knows it's not always easy. And he's encouraging these young believers and us, that's normal. It's normal that it's tough to follow Jesus. Jesus said, if you want to follow me, pick up a cross and come follow me. And, and, and I mean, he, he was living that message. He was living that. You want to be used by God and see signs and wonders and people come and disciples made. Like, you're probably going to end up looking like me. Like, this is the way to the kingdom. And, and this is just true. The more we are aware that tribulations and trials and hardships are coming, uh, the more prepared we are for them, right? I mean, we've all, if not experienced, seen someone who's so in love with Jesus and then they suffer. And it's like, how can this be? How could God do this to me? And imagine if they knew, hey, that day's coming. You're going to suffer a lot before you enter the kingdom of God. And even in this missions trip, there's been religious, political, cultural opposition. If, if we want to see the kingdom of God and if we want to see it advance, we will suffer. And we need that reminding from Paul. So, so we know it's not, God, why are you abandoning me or forsaking me or why are you punishing me? Like we know, no, this is part of what it is to follow Jesus to suffer, to carry a cross because the kingdom and the king is waiting on the other side of that suffering. And then the third thing we can see from Paul's message is we need encouragement along the way, right? We, we need both. We don't just need to hear Paul say, do you know what? It's gonna be really hard. See you later. He, verse 22 starts with, it says, strengthening the souls and encouraging them to continue. Um, I'll be really transparent this morning for me, and this is sometimes mornings for me, I just woke up early to be with Jesus, wasn't feeling it. I didn't, I, there was not an emotion in me that like was positive towards the day or God or what I was going to do. Uh, I didn't feel the joy of the Lord or the presence of God. And um, it was like a legitimate battle for like an hour and a half. Like, God, please help me. I have to proclaim your word today and I just don't, I literally like wrote in my journal, I just want to go lay down and go back to bed. That's all I wanted, like relief. And, and through this 
battle and struggle, like the Lord met me. And he really did strengthen my soul and encourage me to go on with what I have to do. And here's the thing. We all, all of us, have trials and weight that we are carrying. And every one of us has trials and weight, responsibilities, I mean, worry and fear and guilt that we maybe are tempted towards, sin that we're tempted towards or are, have been living in. Um, and we need encouragement. And Jesus wants to strengthen your soul. And, and he wants to give you a spirit to encourage you, don't give up, continue. This is normal. And so for those of us who are feeling weary, uh, I just want to remind us, man, go sit with Jesus. He says, come to me. Come to me, all you who are weary. Don't go to that thing or that person. Come to me. I'll give you rest. If you're feeling tempted, uh, I want to encourage you to turn to, to God's word and remember the misery of sin. This morning I read of David and Bathsheba, just a fresh reminder, this is how much it sucks to sin. And also the joys of obedience. Turn to God's word. If you're feeling really tempted, remember, man, it's, it's a bummer when you sin and it's really good. It's really good when you obey Jesus. Uh, to those of you who are suffering physically or emotionally, um, I want you to, to remind you to come to Jesus who knows what it is to suffer in these ways. He knows what it is to suffer physically and emotionally. And he's your high priest. He can be there with you. And the spirit is the comforter who will come and encourage you. Uh, to those of you who are single and are longing for marriage, I wanna encourage you to come to Jesus this morning and every morning and find what will satisfy your soul, what will be enough for your soul. Uh, to those of us who've blown it, and have given into sin and temptation, I want to encourage you this morning to come to Jesus and remember the cross where he was nailed and bled out and experienced the wrath of God so that you can be forgiven. Where he died and rose again so that you could have new life and new power to walk with him. I wanna encourage you, like you're not done if you've sinned. It's not the end for you. You have the cross and then the grace of God to get you back up and to lead you to new life. That's what the resurrection is all about. Like you can live new life. This, your sin isn't your identity. There's new life for you in Jesus. And then I want us to, just to, to close by reading the rest of these verses together. Let's read verse 23 to 28 or 24 to 28. Then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. When they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Italia and for there they sailed to Antioch where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work they had fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them, how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remained there no little time with the disciples. Really quick, I want us to notice three things. Number one, look at verse, uh, actually 23. Notice um, what Paul did, I should have read that, when they had appointed elders for them in every church. Notice the importance of the local church. Right, like Paul on a mission trip was like establishing churches. And, and what he saw was important when he left these people was that there was a church there with like elders appointed to like have authority and to lead and protect the church. And, and they prayed and fasted. And so I just want us to remember uh, and be encouraged how important 
our church is, how important the local church is for your life with Jesus, how important it is for you to be submitted to elders, to to be a part of the church. And then number two, notice verse 26, where it says, um, they've been commended to the grace of God for the work they had fulfilled. I think it's profound to notice they fulfilled the work. They did it. And And I, man, when I read that, I want to be able to fulfill the work Jesus has given me. Is Jesus was faithful, finished his work on the cross. He's like, hey, I'm calling you to be faithful and fulfill the work I've called you to. Meaning fulfill your work, like literally at your job, be faithful to, to fulfill your work in your marriage, to fulfill your, your work to serve the church, to fulfill the work to evangelism to our neighbors and coworkers. Like that's work that we've been given. And, and Paul's modeling for us, hey, finish the job, finish well. And I also want to say this, I know there are people, most of whom we don't notice in this church, who have been working really, really hard for Jesus, um, who have been serving Jesus, been really faithful, done hard things to preserve their marriage or to be uh, people of integrity at work. And I just, as Paul fulfilled the work and and he's going to hear God say, well done, I just want you to know that Jesus sees that you're working hard. And he, he's proud of you. That's, for, that's for real. Well done, good and faithful servant. And don't give up. Don't give up. It'll be worth it to fulfill the work before you. And then the last thing to notice, verse 27, it says, um, when they had arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done. And here it is, how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. I just want to remind us, church, that the door is open. Uh, God opened the door to the Gentiles through this mission trip. And I just want to remind us, it's still open. There is no such thing as a closed country. That's not a thing. The door is open. There's no such thing as a closed neighbor, as a closed workplace. There's no such thing if the government themselves are like, it's illegal to talk about Jesus. The door is still open. God opens the doors to faith. And remember and be encouraged, salvation is of the Lord. There's no human heart that's like, sorry, God, I'm actually stronger than you and you can't open this door. Remember, Paul, God opened his heart. And and our friends and our families and our coworkers, maybe you this morning, you're like, nope, I'm not letting you in. The door is actually open. God can open those doors. Amen. And and I just want to encourage us, church, Let's walk through those doors. Let's go where God has called us because the door is open and there's power in the name of Jesus. And, and again, let's just say it because we need to be reminded, when we walk through those doors, there will be suffering. There will be opposition. There, there will be difficulties. But on the other side of that is the kingdom of God and Jesus waiting for us. On the other side of walking through those doors of obedience and faith, and you're gonna see Jesus's face one day. And it'll be worth it. It'll be worth it. So right now I'm going to pray for us and then we're going to just worship Jesus who is worth it. And uh, let me just pray. Jesus, you are worthy. And right now we ask that we could get a fresh taste of how good you are, that you are worth it, that you are saving, that you are able or that your word is more powerful than what anyone else or any other culture or any other truth, like your, your word is enough. The gospel is enough. Your spirit is enough, Lord. And so we, as a weak people, um, as a suffering people, come to you for strength right now. We come to you for encouragement. We come to you for life. We come to you in repentance. 
And as uh, we, we fix our eyes on you, Jesus, we ask that you would strengthen us as we take communion and remember that you suffered much for us in a way that we could never suffer, that you took the, the, the wrath of God and you forgave us of our sins. As we take that communion, remember that, that w- would we believe, Lord, that we are no longer condemned, that we are forgiven, and that we now have been filled with the Spirit to go obey Jesus and to walk in newness of life and to walk through those doors that you've called us to. God, I pray for the neighbors, literally, of people of, of our church right now who live in front and beside I just pray for each of those people, Lord. I pray that you would open doors. You would open doors this week. You would open doors through community groups, Lord, that you would just continue to open those doors and that people would get saved. The power is in you, Lord. You are able. We believe you. So now we just fix our eyes on you, Jesus, where it belongs. We trust you will lead us in all the paths of righteousness that we should go. And I'm just really excited to see your face, Jesus. We know that day is coming. Would you just give us a little taste of your presence and your goodness right now?